0: Tiki Hut Media Pop the top on your favorite beer or whatever you drink from Tiki Hut Media. This is Soul Ramblings with Jerry Wicker. Grace, peace, and cheers. Welcome into Soul Ramblings where we talk about faith and life over a cool beer or two or three. And today's episode drops on February 14th, which is not only Valentine's Day, it also marks the beginning of Lent with Ash Wednesday. We'll talk about that. Plus, we'll get into connection or connect. I'll tell you more about that coming up. But with today being Valentine's Day and a day we celebrate love, the reason we give someone a Valentine is to remind them of how much we love them. And there are a lot of quotes about love. If you love something, set it free. If it comes back, it was and always will be yours. If it never returns, it was never yours to begin with. If it just sits in your living room, messes up your stuff, eats your food, uses your telephone, takes your money, and never behaves as if you actually set it free in the first place, you either married it or birthed it. As we celebrate love today, Love is probably one of the most misunderstood words in the world. Part of the problem is that we use it to describe so many things. I mean, I love my wife. I love the church. I love baseball. I love the beach. I love you. We use the same word to express something a little bit different. Giving or receiving love is hard when we don't understand what it is. So first, we need to clear up a few of the misconceptions about love. First of all, most people think that love is a feeling. It's true that love does produce feelings, but it's more than just a feeling. Love is a matter of conduct. Love is something we do, an action, not just a feeling. First John 3.18 puts it this way, Let us love not in word or speech, but in truth and action. Love is more than just words, although we do need to say it, and it's more than just feelings. Secondly, most people think that love is uncontrollable. We say things like, I fell in love. I just couldn't help it. I just fell in love. We talk like we can't control love, but the Bible says that love is controllable. In fact, Jesus commands us to love God and love each other. Now, Jesus wouldn't need to give us a command to love if it were uncontrollable, if we had no control over it. So we have control over who we love and who we don't love. Love is a matter of choice. Colossians 3.14 says, Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Notice those two words, clothe yourselves. In other words, love is something that we can choose to have, something we choose to do. If it were a feeling, something we couldn't help, we couldn't command it but we can command a choice, and love is a choice. It is controllable. 1 Corinthians 13, otherwise known as the love chapter, is one of the most famous passages of scripture on love. It's quoted at weddings routinely, and it talks about, in the first three verses, the need for love. No matter how much I know or How much great wisdom I speak, I might as well be just honking my horn in bumper-to-bumper traffic unless I do it with love. No matter what I can do, healing or miracles, without love, it's all meaningless. And this one really kills me. No matter how much I give of myself, I can be the humblest, most giving person on earth, even give up my life for my faith. But if I'm not flowing in God's love, I might as well not do it. The second thing we see in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians is the character of love, and this happens in verses 4 through 8, where Paul defines for us what agape means. There are eight things that it does, eight things that it does not do. The eight things love is are listed as patient, kind, rejoices in truth, protects, trusts, hopes, perseveres never fails. The eight things love is not are envy, boasting, pride, rudeness, self-seeking, anger, holding grudges, and delighting in evil. And a side note here from one of my favorite theologians, Leonard Sweet, regarding this passage. He says as we read this chapter, we usually linger lovingly over the phrase in verse 5 in the King James Version that love is not easily provoked, Other translations use the words easily angered, but this is an unfortunate translation, Sweet says. First, the word easily is not in the Greek, but added by the translators. Second, the actual Greek word we translate as provoked is the root word, which gives us the word fit. So love does not issue in fits, fits of despair, fits of anger, fits of hopelessness, or fits of selfishness. But love is provoked, and love is provocative. In fact, that's the very meaning of love to be provoked by suffering and injustice and inhumanity. To follow Jesus is to be provoked and provocative. Okay, back to my point. You see, love isn't something magical, some kind of rose colored glasses kind of feeling. It's actually very specific. Love and trust God no matter what seek the best for and the best in those around you, then help benefit their lives as they draw closer to God. That is love. As we continue through 1 Corinthians 13, we see in verses 8 through 12, the third thing about love is the supremacy of love. In verses 8 through 12, Paul says, when you start to see who God really is, what love is really all about, you see that it isn't about you after all. It's about what God does through you for others. And then verse 13 says, and now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. And the greatest of these is love. These three ideas were favorites of Paul, the essentials to life, faith in Jesus, hope of the good things he is doing in our lives and is going to do. But love is the greatest. It's the driving force for everything. God loves us so much that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. And Jesus gave us not only words but an example of that love and unity when he set the example for us in Holy Communion. Theologian Henry Nouwen said that communion was not only a sacrament but also a mystery and a lifestyle of love when he wrote the Eucharist or Communion. It is the most ordinary and the most divine gesture imaginable. That is the truth of Jesus. So human, yet so divine. So familiar, yet so mysterious. So close, yet so revealing. But that is the story of Jesus. It's the story of God who wants to come close to us, so close that we can see Him with our own eyes, hear Him with our own ears, touch Him with our own hands. So close that there's nothing between us and him, nothing that separates, nothing that divides, nothing that creates distance. Jesus is God for us, God with us, God within us. Jesus is giving himself completely, pouring himself out for us without reserve. Jesus doesn't hold back or cling to his own possessions. He gives all there is to give. Eat, drink, this is my body, this is my blood, this is me for you. Today, as this episode drops, is February 14th, as we said, it's not only Valentine's Day, but this year, it is also the beginning of Lent, and that begins each year with Ash Wednesday, and that is today. And we begin the church season of Lent today, a time of reflection, as we wait for the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. This 40 days during Lent, we give up something, we give up our favorite food or drink, so that we can suffer as Jesus suffered prior to Easter. Ash Wednesday marks the beginning of the Lenten season. Ash Wednesday is the day that we are marked with just a little ashes, just a little dirt, if you will. We do this by choice, just a little ashes. That's all it is. And what are ashes? They are a product of burning something away. They're what's left over after fire passes over or through something. They are the waste after the heat and light are gone. So why do we put this, for lack of a better word, dirt on our foreheads on Ash Wednesday? Where did this strange tradition come from, and what does it mean? Well, these ashes are a symbol, like so much in our services that we perform. The Bible tells us that from the dust we came, and to the dust we shall return. That's in Genesis 3.19. We are told that God formed us from the dust of the earth and breathed life into that dust. Without this breath or Spirit of God, we would be just like these ashes, lifeless. In biblical times, it was common for people who were mourning to dress in rough clothing and put ashes on their head. That's where we get the expression sackcloth and ashes. However, instead of all over our heads, we put a cross of ashes on our foreheads. Why do we do that? Well, these ashes are also a symbol of repentance. They symbolize the beginning of Lent a time of reflecting on our shortcomings, our limitations, and our failings. These ashes are also a symbol that we are sealed in Christ. When we're baptized, the pastor seals us with the sign of the cross. This cross of ashes is also a reminder of that same baptismal mark of Christ. The book of Revelation tells of an angel marking the faithful so that when the end of time comes, they'd be protected. The mark was a mark of ownership, of belonging to God. The ashes are from traditionally from burned palm branches, the palm branches from last year's Palm Sunday. And they, again, are a symbol. The palms are a symbol of victory. We remember the victorious ride of Jesus on Palm Sunday leading quickly to his death. With these ashes, we remember that our victories are but ashes before the glory of God. These may be just a few ashes, but as you see, they mean a lot. They may be seen as a symbol of our need for God, that without the teaching and examples of Jesus, without his resurrection, we would be nothing but dust and ashes. If they are a symbol of our repentance and mourning, they are also a way of showing on the outside world, if we truly keep our Lent, what is happening on the inside and that we are once again striving to be like our Savior. Yet in the midst of our repentance, we remember that we are forgiven and marked as Christ's own. The very burning away of our sin by the fire of God's love makes us God's own. And as his own, we are children of God and will overcome death through the cross of Jesus. Ash Wednesday is the beginning of Lent. But Lynn is not a merely 40-day period of deprivation and reflection. It is preparation for truly participating in the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's about dying to an old identity defined by our culture, our traditions, our habits, and even our families, and being born into a new identity centered in the Spirit of God. It means dying to an old way and being born into a new way of being, being centered in God. It is about dying to deadness, that daily routine of our lives that we trudge through, oblivious to the needs of others and the call of our Lord. It is a time of reminding ourselves of God's love and God's reality. The ashes that are placed on our foreheads today remind us that we are mortal. These ashes remind us we have one earthly life, and that's it. How do we spend these 40 days of Lent? Well, we have 40 days to open ourselves to God who created us and loves us. We have 40 days to face ourselves confident in the love and acceptance of God. We have 40 days to remember that we are dust and to dust our bodies will return. But with God's grace, our spirits can be transformed and we can learn to live this life more fully, allowing God's love to transform us. So as we go today to have the sign of the cross placed on our foreheads, May we open our hearts, admit we're helpless to save ourselves, and accept the grace and forgiveness that marks us as a redeemed child of God. Let us rejoice in this simple symbol of our salvation. So if you see people on the street with a dirty cross on their foreheads, you'll know not to say, hey, you got some dirt on your face. We'll be right back after this short break. When it comes to a gun suicide attempt, All it takes is a moment. My son Ricky took his life by the use of a firearm. It broke me and I contemplated suicide. My grandson, I was gonna have to be here for him. I still own my firearm. I keep it in a safe because I wanna keep my grandson and myself safe. Store your guns, locked, unloaded, and away from ammo. Hear more safe stories at endfamilyfire.org. Brought to you by Brady and the Ad Council. Back on New Year's Eve at our church, as we were receiving communion that morning, our pastor invited us to pick up these stars that were on the altar. These are gold stars, and they had a word on them on the back of them. You didn't know what the word was till you picked up the star and turned it over, and it was to be your star word for the year. And our pastor made sure she made sure to tell us there's no magic in this. There's nothing, you know, woohoo about it or anything, but it'd be a word to kind of consider and meditate on and maybe delve a little deeper into and get into some prayer about. My particular word was connect. And I've got a picture of that star in the show notes of this episode. I've also got it posted on social media on our Facebook and Instagram pages, if you'd like to check that out. But here's what I've been digging up about this word, connect. God has divine connections lined up for our lives. There is power in connection. It's helpful to define what connect or connection means. There are several that I've found, but here are a few short definitions. Connect means to bring people together and into contact so that a real link is established. It can mean to join together so as to provide access and communication. It can mean a link to a power. It can mean associate or relate in some respect. It is a mindset of thinking of being linked or related. And it can form a relationship or feel an affinity. Connections lead to life. When our spirit and the spirit of God come together or connect, new birth takes place. When believers come together in unity, God blesses us. When the disciples came together or connected on the day of Pentecost, there was an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Although we are more connected than ever before through the internet, phones, social media, it seems we're more isolated and lonely than ever before. Ezekiel had a vision of a battle scene in Ezekiel chapters 36 through 37. He saw Death Valley. The valley was full of bones, bones that were dry, very dry, because they had separated. They were scattered, fragmented, divided, cut off, abandoned, and therefore dried up. The people of God were in exile and had been scattered. They were saying, our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. And God asks Ezekiel, can these bones live? Turns out the answer is yes. Hope at last, dry bones can live. How's this going to happen, though? And in those chapters in Ezekiel 36 and 37, we see three divine connectors. The first one is the Word of God. The Word of God gives us connection with God and transforms relationships. God can revive things that have been dry and even dead. When the Word of God and the Spirit of God come together, connect, there is resurrection life and the knowledge of God. What is impossible with human beings becomes possible with the power of God. Without God, the church would indeed crumble away, but with God, these dry bones will live again. The second divine connector we see in this Ezekiel passage is the body of Christ. The unity of the church is so, so important. We need visible signs of this unity, these divine connections between different parts of the church and within each local church. This is what Jesus was praying for in John 17. Here, the Lord gives Ezekiel a visual aid using two sticks to communicate the unity God is going to establish. He says in chapter 37, Join them together into one stick, so they will become one in your hand, one king over all of them, one shepherd. So, this is a foretaste of the unity of the body of Christ, the unity of the church, which also leads to the restoration of the city. This vision of restored unity should give us such hope for the church in our city and in our nation and across the world. God never abandons His people, and His plans are always to restore and save us. This third divine connector in this passage is the Holy Spirit. The dry bones had no breath in them, we told, but the Lord said, Prophesy to the breath, come, O breath, and breathe into these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their own feet, a vast army. The Hebrew word ruach is difficult to properly translate it to English. It's translated as different English words in this passage, breath, wind, and spirit. The spirit brings new life and resurrection. This resurrection power lives in you, bringing you new life. And there's also a rattling sound as bones come together, the sound of divine connections forming once again, the sound of God breathing new life into his church by his spirit. The church is a rising giant, a vast army of spirit-filled people full of power, unified in purpose. So dry bones can live again as the bones reconnect. And that leads us into the New Testament book of James, where in James chapter 3, verse 18, in the message paraphrase, James says, you can develop a healthy, robust community that lives right with God and enjoys the results. However, there are conditions which James sets out in the remainder of that chapter. He continues to warn about the tongue, especially for those of us who teach. It is consoling, though, that he adds, we all stumble in many ways. He says that in verse 2. And certainly, I stumble often. The tongue is a powerful little instrument that can do so much good, yet so much harm. It can unite or divide. By our speech, we can ruin the world, turn harmony to chaos, throw mud on a reputation, send the whole world up in smoke, and go up in smoke with it smoke right from the pit of hell. And that's from verse eight of James three. And again, from the message translation, relationships and connections often end because of things that have been said or not said. People lose their jobs, their reputation, start arguments and even wars by their words. Harsh, unjust words have destructive power. In verse nine, James says, with the tongue, we praise our Lord and father, and with it we curse people who have been made in God's likeness. To curse means to speak evil. To bless means to speak well. Don't speak negatively. Learn to control the tongue. Control your tongue so that you speak words of blessing to people and about people. Speak words of life, James is saying. Your words have tremendous power for connection. You can bring healing, encouragement, and edification. Your words can change a person's day or even their life. James goes on to speak of the wisdom that comes from heaven. He writes, do you want to be counted wise to build a reputation for wisdom? Here's what you do. Live well, live wisely, live humbly. It's the way you live that counts. Get rid of all bitter envy and selfish ambition, he says. They are unspiritual and cause all kinds of disorder and evil practice. However, wisdom from heaven is, first of all, pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. If you live like this, your life will have great influence. This is the hard work of getting along with each other, treating each other with dignity and honor. If you work hard at your relationships with those around you and truly connect with them, Then you'll reap a harvest of righteousness. You'll have a huge impact on society. Do you sometimes feel like you've been kicked around by life? Everything seems to be going wrong. You seem to be losing. You're experiencing the oppression talked about in Psalm 129. But victory rests with the Lord. The psalmist says, They've kicked me around ever since I was young. Their plowmen plowed long furrows up and down my back. Then God ripped the harnesses of the evil plowman to shreds. Jesus has made victory possible for you through his death and resurrection, which is the connection made as our dry bones live again when we connect to God and others. Author David Brooks, who wrote a book about character on the subject of character, said in an interview one time, people who really have character make deep, unshakable connections to something outside of themselves. What Brooks was saying there is that connection begins with emptying oneself for others. Connecting involves a commitment to service and community outside of oneself. In Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan, for example, that is extended to even include our enemies, and that's tough. So I guess my question in wrapping all of this up is, for not only you, but for me, how might we empty ourselves for others today? And once we do that, realize that we are in the process of making a connection. Get social with us on Facebook and Instagram. Links to those pages are in the show notes of this episode. You can also check out our Substack page. You can subscribe there for free or you can uh, do a paid subscription, $5 a month or $50 a year, however you want to do that. Got a link to that page in the show notes as well. Wherever you're listening today, I invite you to subscribe. That way you never miss a new episode of Soul Ramblin's podcast. And as we head out for this week, Philippians 4, verse 8 from the Common English Bible. From now on, brothers and sisters, if anything is excellent and if anything is admirable, focus your thoughts on these things. All that is true. All that is holy. All that is just, all that is pure, all that is lovely, and all that is worthy of praise. I'm Jerry Wicker. Thank you for being here and thank you for listening to Soul Ramblings Podcast. Grace, peace, cheers. Thanks for listening to Soul Ramblings with Jerry Wicker. Download new episodes every week. And if you haven't already, subscribe and be sure to leave us a rating and review. So Ramblings is a Tiki Hut Media production.